According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 22. Today we're going to, um, I'm going to wrap up one final issue related to verses 17 through 21. And then we'll be ready for words of the wise. There's 30 statements here, the words of the wise. And we're just going to number them 1 through 30. And uh, by the time we get through with number 30, we're going to be most of the way through chapter 24. Uh, it'll get us all the way from 22.22 to 24.22. How about that? A couple chapters worth of Proverbs here in these 30 sayings. These things are useless. All right. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. Rejoicing, Father, that once again we have the blessing to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for the book of Proverbs and we thank you for the truth that we've been learning for practical application on a daily basis. We submit to you now uh, this time and dedicate it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Ask that you would sanctify and bless. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so thought I saw something. Nope, we're good. Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21 is the introduction, and we've wrapped up almost everything here, and then we're ready for verses 22 and following, which are the 30 statements that get made. Um, it starts with, uh, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. In verse 17, that is the heading. The heading for this section, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. It's not identified as such in the New American Standard Bible. Uh, other Bibles uh, tag it as such, give it a pericope heading, if you will, uh, similar to what we have in chapter 1, similar to what we have in chapter 10, similar to what we have in chapter 25, where we have section headings that the uh, English Bible publishers have chosen to identify with uh, pericope headings, with the, the publishing blurb in the, uh, in the margin. Uh, they chose not to put a pericope heading here. Um, so we're going to put one in ourselves. <laughs> and we're going to uh, put it in there. The words of the wise. Okay, And it starts with incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. That's the heading. And apply your mind to my knowledge. So this is something not only that we're supposed to listen to, but this is something we're supposed to process as we apply our minds. Like in First Peter, gird your minds for action. Apply your minds to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. The pleasant experience of the Word of God. So um, let me pick up on the outline. The introduction to this section reminds us of the introduction to Proverbs itself. The inclined ear expresses an eagerness. The applied mind expresses attentiveness. So we have an eagerness and an attentiveness. Those are two different things. And in the attentiveness, what we're doing is, in, as being attentive is that we are putting two and two together. We're thinking for ourselves. We're processing truth. 
And this is, uh, I was sharing with, with uh, Mari the other day, this is something I enjoyed about Jim. Jim DeLuca was marvelous at thinking. And, uh, and he'd have a question when class was over, and I was happy to answer his questions and whatever, but he, had, he was listening to what was said, and then he was making connections with other things, with other passages of Scripture, with other lessons, things that were not said on that particular day, but he was making those connections. And I think that's marvelous. I wish everyone would do that, all right? Maybe everyone does, they just don't tell me. But the making those connections, that's the attentiveness So we have an eagerness and we have an attentiveness. We have the inclined ear and we have the applied mind. You've got to apply your mind. And so this is the uh, emphasis of what we're looking at there. Incline your ear, apply your mind. And then it goes on to say, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. This is a pleasant way of life. This has pleasure to your soul. Abiding in the Word of God is a pleasant existence. And it's curious to me, if you just talk people on the street and you ask them, you know, uh, would you describe your life as pleasant? Okay? What, what kind of life are you living right now? Do, are you living a pleasant life? And, uh, and I guess it's, you know, maybe it's not fair to ask people that, but whatever. Uh, it's, it's just a, an icebreaker. It's a lead in to the fact that we do have pleasures. God has provided us with pleasures in this life. And the greatest pleasure we have in this life as believers is to live in the Word of God. To, let, to be living in the Word of God and let the Word of God live in us. It's described as pleasant. It will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. The living and abiding Word of God is a living thing. It's powerful. God-breathed and powerful. And so if it's in your soul, if, if you have it stored there, if it's dwelling richly within you, then it can spring forth at a moment's notice that you've got Scripture ready to go uh, at, uh, for any occasion, for any uh, event that may be taking place. And so you want the Word of God to be ready on your lips. Also, it builds trust. You'll notice the outcome here. And this is what I'm not sure that I stressed sufficiently last week when we were dealing with this. There is an outcome. There is a consequence. It is pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. Your trust may be in the Lord. When it comes to the walk of faith, when it comes to living your life daily, uh, trusting, living your life daily in a faith way, all right, coming to faith convictions in your decision making, having faith as a, as an operating function in your in your daily walk, your trust may be in the Lord. It's a lot easier to have your trust in the Lord when you're living in His Word day by day. When you're neglecting His Word day by day, then trust is going to be a problem. Faith is going to be a struggle. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the more you're saturated with doctrine, if you're under teaching, if you're living in the Word of God, if it's treasured in your heart, if it's ready on your lips, that life that's living in the Word of God is a life that's, gonna, that's going to produce a greater faith so that your trust may be in the Lord. And sometimes we just have to be honest enough to say, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief, right? We have to realize that yes, I am walking by faith, but I have these struggles, and so I need additional faith, I need additional encouragement, I need additional doctrine that will help to keep me stable in these testing applications. So again, it's verse 19, so that your trust may be in the Lord. And then it emphasizes the daily exercise, so that uh, I have taught you today, even you. I have taught you today, even you. And two things get emphasized there. 
First of all, that it's got to be daily. And then secondly, that it's got to be personal. Even you, all right? Everybody has to learn for themselves. Yes, we're a part of a community. We're part of a church family. We have a body. We care for one another. We, we love one another. We serve one another. But we don't learn each other's lessons. I learn my lessons. You learn your lessons. I have to grow in the grace of knowledge. You have to grow in the grace of knowledge. And it would be helpful if we could get just you know one smarty pants somewhere to learn everything and then extend that all to us. But that's not how it goes. We all need to learn. Each individual daily. So when it says I have taught you today, even you, it's stressing the daily study and it's stressing the personal application. And there's nobody that's, that's beyond the point where you you know, where you can say, I'm done. I've learned enough doctrine. I have enough now to last me the rest of my life. No, that's the wrong approach. Even you have more to learn. And today's a day to learn it. I like that. Have I not written to you excellent things? Or have I not written to you 30 things? And the manuscript puzzle here is it's, it's just a, it's a mess. It's a, it's a text criticism exercise in the Hebrew manuscripts, in the Greek, the Aramaic Targums, uh, all the ancient translations. Uh, really lend themselves to um, about two or three kind of leading suspicions. Um, and, I, and I don't mind the translation 30 things. Uh, I understand why folks like it because you can number the things that follow uh, from 1 to 30. And uh, so then because you can do that, I think it, it motivates people to go back and, and retranslate this verse. Uh, have I not written to you 30 things? But I, th- I don't mind excellent things. Of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth. So now we have certainty. We have, um, this is where we're, we're learning the word of God. We're, we're obtaining these truths by faith. But then we have the stability, the certainty of knowing what we know. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him against that day. Because all that I am is, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of His grace. So I'm going to know with certainty the words of truth. And you can't talk me out of Bible doctrine anymore than you can talk me out of my salvation. You can talk me out of any of these things. When you have the faith conviction, the certainty that comes through living in the Word of God. Alright? This thing has been such a... Alright. Let's try that. I almost want to buy a second one of these. If I can buy a second one of these, then the plan is is to keep one permanently molded to my big floppy ears. (laughs) And then you have a different one, a guest one uh, for guest speakers and visitors and missionaries and whatever. And and uh, they never wear the microphone that is suited to my big floppy ears. All right. What are we talking about? Certainty. Not only knowing with certainty, having a personal stability, having a personal confidence, this personal um, conviction of the Word of God, but then that you may correctly answer Him who sent you. The fact is we are accountable Every single one of us is accountable. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And we've been given much. 
We are believer priests in the church age. We are members of the body of Christ. We are a royal family of God. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We are accountable. We have to give an account. And we have to give an account, of course, to unbelievers when we're giving the gospel. That's an account. That's an account of the hope that's within us. We have to give an account to our enemies. We have to give an account to our dependents, that is those in our church body that we're testifying to. And then we have to give an account to God Himself. Romans fourteen twelve. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Each one of us will give an account of Himself to God. This is what we're accountable for. And it's not a Bible quiz. It's not, uh, we're not going to stand there and answer a quiz and, and get brownie points for scoring well. But we're giving an account of ourselves to God for our faith convictions. What we learned, what we uh, what shaped our being and how we made our decisions. Interestingly enough, this is Romans 14. I've spent a lot of time in, a lot of time in Romans 14. We're not here to judge one another. We're not here to put stumbling blocks in a brother's way. We're not here to tear each other down. We're here to build each other up. And whether we're tearing down or building up, we're going to give an account. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And so as Proverbs twenty two twenty one says... We need to give an answer. We need to correctly answer him who sent you. Each one of us are sent ones. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. We are sent ones. We are in this lost and dying world and we will give an an account. And so as accountable ones, it's, it's critical that we have this wisdom. All right. So all of this then is the introduction that introduces the topic and now we've got words of the wise, 30 of them. And so point six in the outline, I'm going to go ahead and keep the, um, we've been doing this for 22 chapters now, <clears throat> we, we give each chapter its own separate outline. And in giving each chapter its own separate outline, um, we're going to cross chapters here at this point, and so hopefully we'll be fine with that. Um, so point six in the chapter 22 outline is words of the wise number one, Okay. And that's going to cover verses 22 and 23. And then we'll get to verse 24 and 25, and that'll be point seven in our outline, which is words of the wise number two. And then we'll get to uh, verse 26 and 27, and that'll be point eight in our outline, which if you want to cheat and write it down now, that's fine. Words of the wise number three. (laughs) And then... um, Point 9 will be verse 28. Point 10 will be verse 29 as we get to uh, words of the wise number 4 and words of the wise number 5. So the first five words of the wise get us to the end of chapter 22. Okay? And that gets us through the outline points 6 through 10. Tragically then, we're going to cross into chapter 23 And I'm going to start the outline over in chapter 23 with point one. And point one in chapter 23 is going to be words of the wise number six. Okay, so you're following all that? Doesn't care? Doesn't matter to you? I'm the only one that cares about these things. (laughs) My CDO is taking over. You know what CDO is? CDO is like OCD, except it's in the proper alphabetical order. All right. 
Words of the wise, number one. Let's look at verses 22 and 23 here. Do not. A lot of these 30 statements begin with do not. Many of them do. Almost not all of them, but, but a significant number of them. A lot of them do. Almost like the Ten Commandments. Almost like thou shalt not. Uh, only just a, more of a simple streamlined do not. Okay? And uh, they start with the al pro, uh, prohibitions as we have them here in Hebrew. So, um, and, and not only do we have the do nots, but connected to many of the do nots are reasons why not. Okay? Well, that if you do the do not, here's what you might expect. So do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. And here's why not. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Okay? Because God's on their side. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this. The Lord will plead their case and take the life, the, the nephesh, the soul, of those who rob them. So there's consequences, okay? And this is kind of unique, and it's not, like I say, it's different than the Ten Commandments. It's different from, you know, thou shalt not murder, and then it doesn't say, for if you do, then here's, you know, what, what Yahweh is going to do. It's just you've got ten statements of, of, of thou shalt not. Here, though, we have uh, these expressions and then explanations that are given. And uh, so I kind of like it. All right. Do not rob the poor. That's the, the basic do not. And robbing the poor is being highlighted here because ultimately you shouldn't rob anybody. <laughs> right? You know, it, do we have license to rob the rich now? Because this verse says, do not rob the poor. <laughs> no. Um, but the point that's being made here is when you observe somebody that's destitute, that um, is is easy pickings, is uh, is vulnerable, and if you view a vulnerability as an opportunity, you're wrong. That's the wrong attitude. That's satanic. That's not Christ-like. Christ-like, uh, the Christ-like thinking, which is the Father's thinking, looks to the weak and the vulnerable, the destitute, looks to uh, folks that don't have strength, and says. My opportunity is to bless the one without strength. My opportunity is to provide, to protect, to, to serve in agape love. This is what our Father does. You know, if the Father was going to look on the poor and rob the poor, then he'd see this lost and dying world and say, okay, there's a, there's a target-rich environment worthy of being plundered. And, uh, and then none of us would be saved. He would have just destroyed the world with Adam's original sin and been done with it. So there's a lot here that we can do. The A part is simply addressing the poor because he's poor, talking about the poor by virtue of his existence, by virtue of his being poor, okay? Just the case of existence for what he is. Say, oh, he's poor? Great. My plunder. And then you just decide in a satanic way that you can can rob him. The second part, the B part, or crush the afflicted at the gate. Now, robbing and crushing, they're, they're related terms. This is Hebrew poetry. We're using related terms in, in parallel. The poor and the afflicted are related terms. They're being placed in, in parallel. The same thing is being stated twice, but with the, the adjustment that's being made here is in the, the B part, we're actually talking about the gate. We're talking about um, public activity. We're talking about the economics, the judicial system, the legal system, the uh, the politicians are involved, <laughs> okay? And uh, when you're using the, the political system to commit your theft, it's still theft. 
it's still robbery. It's still wrong. And we want to talk about that as well. Robbing and crushing is never right. Even when hidden within legal and judicial proceedings, robbing and crushing is never right. Even when hidden within legal and judicial proceedings, thou shalt not steal is universal. Thou shalt not steal. Because you can get away with it doesn't make it right. Because your politicians let you do it doesn't make it right. Because the politicians themselves are doing it doesn't make it right. (laughs) And when your government is stealing from you because they're manipulating inflation and devaluing your savings and devaluing your, your, uh, your cash on hand, that's theft. They are violating thou shalt not steal. And they're doing it daily. They've been doing it for years because they themselves are bankrupt and they, they're, they're trying to steal as much as they can. <clears throat> so robbing and crushing is never right. You know, do not rob. Just end the sentence there. <laughs> do not rob. You know, that's just like thou shalt not steal. Don't do it. But specifically the poor because he's poor. So recognizing that this whole spectrum, the financial spectrum is, is what it is. It's a relative scale and we're all on it. Every human being on this planet is somewhere in between the poorest guy on earth and the richest guy on earth. <laughs> okay, We're somewhere in the middle and as Americans we're up there towards the top on a global scale of things. Human beings in our finite existence we have this relative scale of finances and this relative scale of, of physical health. And that's, that's what's universal for all of us. And just because somebody's poor from our perspective Somebody else considers us poor from their perspective. How about that? So I look at this guy and I think, oh, he's poor. I can victimize him. Well, guess what? There's always a bigger fish. (laughs) Okay? Because somebody else can look at you and say, yeah, I think you're poor too. Now where am I? So it's never right, even when hidden within legal and judicial proceedings. If you can cloak it in the morality of a legal proceeding, then you might claim, hey, I'm, I'm good with this. Okay, Like <clears throat> the Pharisees in the first century that um, were neglectful to their parents because they cloaked it in a korban ritual where they could dedicate their money to the Lord <clears throat> and not take care of their parents. Switching the water, seeing if it helps. You know, the book of Amos centers on this very issue. And you could read the entire book and and, um, we could spend all this morning in the book of Amos or we can just look at Proverbs 22.22 and say, okay, it's summarized right there. <laughs> but the fact is, uh, crushing in the gates, what's that about? Crushing in the gates. The gate is where um, 
financial transactions took place, where legal proceedings took place. Uh, it kind of, uh, what well, we would say, it encompasses the judicial branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch. They had it structured slightly differently. But everything is done there publicly. It's like uh, filing something in a court today and having it notarized and putting it on the record so that anyone else can then go and look at it. When business is transacted in the gate, then the, the, um, the men that have the standing in the gate, the men that are recognized as being the, uh, the clan and the tribal uh, elders, those that have authority within the gate, uh, are the witnesses to the transaction. They're the witnesses to the goings-on. And so if there's something wrong, something that needs to be invalidated, those are the folks to do it. Uh, when, when Boaz had to, uh, he had to deal with the, the closer kinsmen that had the claim over him to redeem uh, Ruth. And, and so the story there, they had to go to the gate. And then um, knucklehead, whatever that guy's name was, we don't know. But when he, when he said that he did not want to redeem the, the uh, possessions of, of Elimelech, then uh, so he publicly, and of course there's a removal of the shoe <laughs> involved. There's some cultural things we don't get these days. But anyway, it was done in the gate. It's done in public view. It's done um, up front in, in a judicial, executive, legal way. And so this is what we see here. Let's go over to Amos and see some of these admonitions that the Lord is giving. Amos chapter 2 and verse 6. And I don't think we need to read any of... Um, yeah, there's a lot here. So um, the formula in chapter 1 that crosses into chapter 2 is the, the 3 and the 4 for 3 transgressions and for 4 for three transgressions and for four. But after the Gentile nations, now it turns to Judah in uh, Amos 2.4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. There's a, there's a giving over. For three and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. This demonstrates that God is slow to anger, He's been patient, He's been watching, He's been giving warnings. And even up to the third one, they have an opportunity for repentance, that He might revoke the punishment, that He might respond to their repentance, and that He might you know, relent of the calamity. But now that they've reached that number four occasion, for three and for four, that means they've crossed the law and the time is up. I will not revoke its punishment because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have also led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And so you have a culture steeped in deceit. You have a population following the lies of their political leaders. God says he's sick of it. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So the southern kingdom, now the northern kingdom. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Look what they're doing. Their population are commodities. (laughs) Their people are... um, either assets or liabilities on a ledger. And as far as these perverts are concerned, doctrinal perverts, okay, 
they're, they're, they're satanic. They're not following the will of God. They sell the righteous for money. As far as they're concerned, um, all, all you Bible-thumping do-gooders, <laughs> you're a liability on their ledger. All right? And uh, the only use they have for you is the money they can get from you. They sell the righteous for the money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Even, uh, even the destitute, I can get something out of them. Okay? And uh, today, in this day and age, we've got, um, we've got uh, political parties that have learned how to, to monetize the needy. They've learned how to milk uh, folks for, for votes. They can get, it's very lucrative what they can do as they manipulate people in different ways. And it's all about their advancement. It's all about their um, agendas. Selling the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. It's not about victimizing the, the victimizable just because you can. Okay? Because God could victimize all of us if He wanted to. He can. That's uh, not the pattern we're to be following. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless turn aside the ways of the humble. The man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. Oh, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. I think that should be a lowercase g there, because they're not worshiping the true God. All right, so that's Amos chapter two. Continues through chapter three. Continues into chapter four. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. <laughs> All right, now. There's different ways to insult people, and there's different ways to, to, to name calling is useful. God uses it, Jesus uses it. Name calling gets attention, and uh, it's designed to get attention. Calling people cows can be insulting. It can also be descriptive. It, can be, it doesn't have to be insulting. Um, in fact, it can be very endearing if um, you know some of the poetry in Song of Solomon is lost on us. And some of the, but you'll notice there's an awful lot of women in the in the in the Hebrew Old Testament, and they're named Heifer. Okay, they're named Makah. They're named Heifer in the Hebrew, and it's curious to me. <laughs> Apparently, it was endearing. It was a, it was a, girls didn't mind it, wives didn't mind it. You know, in the modern world, you know, you call your wife a Heifer. That's not going to go too far. Okay, I don't recommend that. Something that doesn't translate well. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. Now this is critical, okay? Not to be crude or whatnot, but there's cows and there's bulls, right? Okay? The bulls of Bashan, you know who they are? You know what that's about? Jesus referenced them. They're in Psalm 22. He's on the cross. It's the bulls of Bashan that have surrounded me. We have the, the fallen angels, the, the, the realm of Satan that was placing Jesus under attack and, and, and was the this angelic conflict involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Those are the bulls of Bashan. Yahweh now is rebuking the cows of Bashan. Okay? And these are the idolatrous political leaders of Israel that are, um, you know, they're servicing the bulls. They're the cows. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. And this is the mindset of the victimizing. This is the mindset. This is, this is like uh, Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. This is the, these are the, um, and it's, it's written from a female perspective, calling them cows here, but, and speaking to their husbands. Everything is all about the the latest, um, you know. The the you think about uh, Louis and, and Marie Antoinette and their opulence and their life of, you know, living the life of Riley. And meanwhile, the peasants of France are are, are, are revolting. Okay, and um, doesn't concern them at all because they're just victimizing them anyway, oppressing the poor, crushing the needy. Same language we have in in uh, Proverbs who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. All they're concerned about is, you know, having another glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> you know, going to the spa for another treatment. Uh, all just living their life of luxury and victimizing whoever. I don't know. Just some of this strikes me as, as um, very vivid because yeah, no, there's nothing new under the sun. We have the same thing today they had back then in the days of Amos. You know, and, and you, uh, you, get, you watch the news coverage and you see these things and um, you know, Nancy Pelosi goes into this place to have her hair done and of course she doesn't have to wear a mask and she's living this wealthy life and she's doing all this stuff and she's, she's uh, you know, in this high-end salon where I'm sure it was $1,000 or more for her hair or whatever, I don't even know. But, but meanwhile... What are the streets of San Francisco like? What are the vagrants doing there? Where's the human feces all over the streets and all the other, you know, you know what I'm saying? We're seeing in our day and age circumstances nearly identical, probably worse than what was going on in, in Amos's day. And look at the divine wrath upon Judah, the divine wrath upon Israel at this time. So the Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, days are coming upon you. Days are coming. When Yahweh says days are coming, that's scary. Okay? Well, I guess not always, because days are coming when the new covenant comes too. So that's another days are coming application. When they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. That's what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians would chain you all together in a long chain and the hook was through your jaw as you were all chained up together and marched off to captivity. The last of you with fish hooks, you will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. So that's Amos chapter 4. How about Amos chapter 5? See, it just never stops. It never stops. Let me see. And I wish these passages were paid more attention to. Yeah, he who made Pleiades and Orion and changes the deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The creator God of the universe is still in charge of this universe. <laughs> right? Unless you make a new constellation or change the sun rising or all this other stuff, until you make your own universe... You better submit to the God of this universe. The Lord is His name. 
And um, it is he who flashes forth with the destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. God's in charge. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. So what happens is when you have a corrupt political system, the one honest politician is hated. <laughs> okay? Like Daniel. Daniel was righteous. and The other two commissioners were, were, were uh, corrupt. And so they had to kill Daniel so they could continue their corruption. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. The one that stands forth and says, um, excuse me, <laughs> like when Nicodemus speaks in the Sanhedrin and says, don't we usually hear from the condemned first before we condemn them? <laughs> and they're trying to railroad Jesus to the, to the cross. Abhorring him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. When you're using the legal system to pervert, to pervert justice, the God of justice deals with that. The God of justice deals with that. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. As we talk about today, we've got the best uh, judicial system that money can buy, which is the problem, right? We don't want a judicial system that money can buy. We want uh, Lady Justice to be blindfolded. You know, if you can buy the legal system, if you can buy the judicial system, if you can buy the executive branch, what are you doing? We end up with a kleptocracy, which is where we are. And so um, distressing the righteous and accepting bribes, God's going to deal with that. Turning aside the poor at the gate, God's going to deal with that. Therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. I think we have to have this kind of wisdom. We saw this in the book of Proverbs as well. There's a time to speak, there's a time not to speak. That's Ecclesiastes. But Proverbs tells us when the wicked reign, you've got to have that discernment to know when is it time for, when does the church need to go underground? When do, when do believers with truth need to have more discernment? Not saying that we compromise. Of course we never compromise, but we have to have discernment about what we say and how we say it. And just be prepared that when there's a price to pay for what we say, we better be ready to pay that price. And it may be that it's more prudent, as this verse says, at such a time the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. As Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed and then the next day he's standing before Pontius Pilate. He says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. We better realize that. If, uh, if in fact, this is we're observing the, the, um, the, uh, the darkness upon our land. If, uh, the, if the republic actually is dead, if, if we're simply pretending, then uh, we better realize that. We better realize what the reality is, and then if we're pretending, then we better get good at pretending, okay? And have, uh, have the discernment to pretend right along with them, <laughs> Because at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time.
All right. Yes. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Look, we are commanded to hate. This world says, you know, hate is always a problem. No, we're commanded to hate and love. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's Romans 12. That's a church age application. Sanctified hate. Hate evil, love good. And establish justice in the gate because the God of justice is watching. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Perhaps. Perhaps. Maybe. We don't know. Because we're finite. We don't know tomorrow. We don't know next year. We don't know two years from now. We don't know. Perhaps God may be gracious. We're just going to walk in integrity, living the Word of God. I love the book of Amos. Got a notebook out there in the hallway on the minor prophets. We did 12 prophets in 12 months. We had a prophet of the month. (laughs) And in the minor prophet series, I forget which month Amos was, but um, it's a good book. I love Amos. All right, well, let's let that go. God personally champions the lowly. God personally champions the lowly. Not only do we have it here in, in Proverbs 22, the Lord will plead their case. He's their advocate. He's their defender. The Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. God's watching. And I think sometimes it's worth exploring, well, how? Okay? We want to know who, what, where, when, why, and how. We want to know the details. We want to see, because we don't physically see it in the here and now. We see the victimizing takes place. We see that it keeps taking place, that it gets worse, it gets worse. The more emboldened Satan gets, he just, you give him an inch, he takes a mile, then he takes two miles. And um, we say, well, we don't see this yet. I'm skeptical. Is the Lord really pleading their case? Why don't I see it? And I think it's worth we better uh, discuss and consider that first of all there can be we can view this passage on an eternal scale and say well the recompense comes at the, at the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne. But we can also see that the judgment also comes presently in time but within the, within the um, invisible realm. That is in the sole capacity of God's gracious provision to the person being, being comforted, right? Because when you're afflicted, then when, when the world's afflicting you, God can be comforting you. When you're weak, then you can be strong. And so when God has taken your case, pleading case, taking the life of those who robbed them, that doesn't mean that He's overruling their volition and forcing them to do something different. They're still doing what they're doing in their volition, but they're destroying their soul and God's looking out for the victim. God's looking out for the one that needs the shepherd. Taking the life of those who rob them. Pleading their case. Pleading their case. Appreciate the legal terminology on that. Now this is not new. This is not something Solomon invented. This actually goes all the way back to Moses. This has been a feature of the Old Testament. This has been a feature of Israel under the law. Israel was birthed in bondage for a reason. 
God took the, the Jewish people and put them in 400 years of bondage so that when He brought them out they would be a nation birthed out of bondage. That they would understand what it means to be a slave. They would understand what it means to be unjustly treated. They would understand all of these issues so they would not be oppressing a, a stranger. They would not be um, victimizing the, the vulnerable. Exodus 22 you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. How many times are widows and orphans mentioned in the, in the uh, Scriptures? Old Testament, New Testament, both by the way. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. The widow and the orphan has a hotline to, to heaven, if you will. Right? You know, like the, uh, the, the button that, that hangs around Jim's neck and he pushes it. <laughs> far too often. Sometimes accidentally. All right, But just think about it. And it's better than a medical alert button. It's better than uh, you know, having some operator saying, you know, do you need help? And whatever. This is the widow and the orphan that God Himself is watching. If you afflict Him at all, if He does cry out to me, I will surely hear His cry. And my anger will be kindled. Now God's omniscient, of course. He's known all this since the foundation of the world. He knows everything. But beyond His omniscience, He also experientially perceives things. That He interacts within creation on a perceptional basis. How did I phrase that in the Genesis class? He perceives and He's affected by what He perceives. What He sees, what He hears, what He smells, what He tastes, what He feels. Including anger. His anger is kindled. I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Here's consequences, divine sovereign consequences. You're going to victimize a widow? All right. Your wife is a widow. Okay? And maybe not physically or maybe, yes, physically. I think God is uh, very judicious in how He applies these things. And in some cases, the, in the wrath of God, it's actually um, more judgment to, uh, to keep her alive, <laughs> to keep him alive, okay? You know, there's a reason why Satan kept Mrs. Job alive. They shall become widows and your children fatherless. And so, um, and it goes on, there's more victimizing that happens here. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you're not to act as a creditor to him, you're not to charge him interest. In fact, the whole banking system that's separated from the families and the clans and the, the, uh, the family-based business dealings, God had a, a very tight rope on that in the Old Testament under the law. We're going to see that in the next do not. Um, no, the third do not. In verse 26 of Proverbs it says, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debt. That's, uh, that's not a biblical economic model. And they're warned against it. So God personally champions the lowly. He's their advocate. He provides. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. And um, yeah. He says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. 
Understand the God that we serve. He's a God of righteousness, a God of justice, a God of compassion for the poor and the lowly. If we have any different attitude than that personally or collectively as a society, as a culture, as a government, we're going to have problems. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. See, this is the background. He brought them out of bondage so that they would have the right perspective. So God's the God of justice. You want to abuse the legal system? You want to abuse the court system? You want to abuse, you know, you want to... um, you know, find somebody with a deep pockets, take them to court and milk them for everything you can. There's lawyers will help you do it. Okay? But the God of justice sees these things. By the way, it goes both directions. Victimizing the poor and victimizing the politically disconnected because you can. Because they've got the bucks to go get the money out of the deep pockets. Psalm 3510. By the way, defending the poor doesn't mean uh, plundering other people to to give them everything. Okay, that's not that's not defending the poor or hindering the poor from being victimized. I think that's another confusion that Satan enters into things that we should just distribute. We should redistribute. How do you redistribute when it wasn't distributed in the first place? Okay, and get me going on that. Trying to keep it biblical. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? What are these talking bones about? Let me back up. Um, All right, Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. So if somebody's attacking me, they're in the hands of the Lord. I'm going to leave them with God to deal with. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind which which the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. So David understood this. Jesus understood this. In many ways, David was a type of Christ with the deceivers, with the liars, with the traitors, those that were seeking his downfall. So let destruction come upon him unawares and let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. As believers, you and I are greatly privileged to just leave our, leave our defense in the hands of the Lord and uh, let, let God provide, let God protect, let God take care of what needs to be taken care of. I don't want to return evil for evil. I want to return a blessing instead. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in His salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? And I, I think this is a neat parallel. The poetry of this that puts the, the soul on a, on a contrast with my body, my bones. Because realize if I poison my soul, my bones will be affected. But if I'm rejoicing before the Lord, my bones are also benefited. The benefits of of having a a proper spiritual life that that has effects, either positive or detrimental, 
to our uh, physical life. So my soul shall rejoice, my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him? And the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? This is God. God advocates for the poor and the needy. He personally champions the lowly. If you've got nobody else, see now, we're designed, God has blessed us, God has designed humanity to be family-based, and we have families, we have clans, we have tribes, we have nations. Those are all in the laws of divine establishment. And so we have uh, the benefit of that in terms of uh, family for our financial needs, for our health needs, for our provision, for our safety, for all these things. So that, uh, that we're provided for. Children have parents to provide for them, to protect them, to teach them in the, in the Word of God. Wives have husbands to provide for them, to protect them, to teach them in the Word of God. The, uh, the blessings that God has designed, He's built into the laws of divine establishment for these very reasons. Now when this fallen world has consequences and this fallen world results in widows and orphans, what happens for particular children that don't have parents? For particular wives that lose their husbands? In the particular cases where the laws of divine establishment have um, been removed, what happens to a citizen when the uh, when the national government that's supposed to be a, a blessing and a protection has been uh, removed? Okay, <laughs> sad to say, what happens when a nation turns its back on its own citizens and leaves its own citizens? Uh, trapped in Afghanistan or wherever, okay? Well, I hope they're saved. <laughs> Praying for them, that they'll walk by faith. And as they're martyred, I hope they have a testimony to their enemies. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling they rejoiced. See, so it's one-way street here. In his attitude, he has sacrificial love towards them. He's praying for them. He's, He's grieved over them. They can't wait to watch him trip and fall. At my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast they gnashed at me with their teeth. Anyway, Psalm 35. It's a, it's a great psalm. God personally champions the lowly. So understand, godly men and godly women will imitate God in this regard as conduits of grace and mercy. God champions the poor. What are we supposed to be doing? Okay? In a biblical sense, truly, legitimately advocating for, speaking for, legitimately providing for, not callously manipulating for our own, advance, our own advancement. All right. I've only got two minutes left. No, I've got four minutes left. We could pretend that the clock is slow 
when we're starting Bible class and then we can pretend that the clock is fast at the end of Bible class. Or we could just fix the stupid clock and we'll know what time it is. Um, Job 29, 12. We'll pick up here next week but because um, I do want to spend time on this and I think this is um, because there's, there's, there's folks today that view um, homelessness, vagrancy, they view um, the poor um, as um, their path to advantage, their path to political advantage and power. And uh, they even glean a particular um, satanic thrill when they, when they have the right attitude that is adjusted to Satan's wisdom. Uh, and, and so you end up with this, this horrible tug of war in, in our cities. You end up with, um, with, with uh, even among believers that, are, that adopt Satan's wisdom instead of the biblical wisdom as far as what do we need to do with, uh, with the homeless population in Austin. Can we be biblical about it or do we have to be satanic about it? And if you try to, to contrast the two, then you know, the other side doesn't want to hear that at all. You're just a hater. No, I'm, I'm biblical. Okay? And if you, if you want to be unbiblical, then just let me know. You know you, you're unbiblical, I'm biblical, and there you go. All right. But here's Job testifying. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe in a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. And it goes on. But, of course, that was then. That was back in the day. Job's not in a position to do any of that now. Job's lost it all. And he's lamenting. (laughs) He's blaming God. But uh, he doesn't deserve what he's getting. Because he's done, he, he was the example of doing everything right. And as he recounts this, um, we're agreeing with God that, no, that Job was a righteous man, blameless in his day. There was no one on earth like him. We'll, we'll pick up here again next week. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the Bible, the absolute eternal standard. I thank you, Father, that wisdom from your word can impact not only our spiritual life, but even in Bios life, Father, we, it can shape how we make decisions even in Bios life. So I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.